In Acts chapter 21, we've got some reading to do this morning, and then we'll go back. It's been a few weeks, and then we'll see where we're being led here. If you've been following along and doing your reading outside of the class, you'll find some of the most fascinating narratives um, regarding this third missionary journey. And we pick up verse 15 in Acts chapter 21, where we see Dr. Luke continues on the narrative where he opens up and he says, And after those days we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. So real quick before I continue reading, look at where we see the word, we see where after those days we, this is Dr. Luke describing the disciples himself that were with Paul and that they were working with him. So in verse 16, There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea, and brought with them one Manasseh of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. When he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. When they had heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. Then take and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such things save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, and from blood, and from strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day purifying himself with them entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. Now stop here for a minute. I want to read a few more verses. You have to see what's going on here. Do not get confused. Right now up to this point, these are the Christian Jews. These are the Jews that love Paul, but they're still having a problem with his view of the old law. And he's worried about the abrogation. And here the Messiah now is being the central motif and the central epicenter of everything going on. Now the writing takes a turn. Real quick. We're going to go to that. Lisi. Um, is, is this connected with the letter that was said before Right. Yes, there were thousands. And what there was was there was an, there was still a division amongst the Christian Jews about circumcision and about basically the effects of the institution of the old law and the attitude towards it. So when we move on, now we're going to see the Jews as we read these next few verses. I wanted to stop so you're not confused because this can be confusing if you're not paying attention to the literary form of the King James Bible, which is the, the, the greatest description you're going to get of this. We're now moving in to the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are actually going to be coming against each other because of Paul describing the resurrection. 
The Christian Jews want, want, want Paul to make a vow. Now here comes the Jews that followed him from Asia Minor, and they're furious. Now here's what happens. Now this is a different sect of Jews now. Verse 27, And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people. This is not the Christian Jews. These were the ones that wanted him dead and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law in this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city of Trophimus an Ephesian whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith, that means without any hesitation, the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. So th here's what happens here. Before I get into some of the detail, and I want to go back a pace so we can work up to this, because we hadn't really finished with the prophecy of what was going to happen to Paul. The prophecy is now unraveling. He was told that he was going to be in big trouble. So right now, Paul goes in, he's talking to, he's here basically now at the Jerusalem council. The Jews love him to death, but they have a problem. So they come to Paul, they welcome him in, they call him brother, which is very important, and then they say, listen, we got to do something. Now we're going to look at that. So when this happens... Here they're thinking that if they take this purification ritual all the way from the Nazarites, that it would basically emancipate Paul from any future problems. That was a problem because they were trusting in their works and not Christ. That did not stop these other Jews who cried out for Israel. They're saying, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are saying to these Christian Jews, what are you doing? Why aren't you with us? We need to, we need to punish this man because he's still talking about this Jesus Christ. And they're saying he's got to stop this. So they grab him physically. So the Christian Jews had nothing to do with this. They grab him, and literally, eventually we will see that they're literally at some point holding Paul up over their heads, taking him upstairs. People are trying to grab him and rip his body into pieces. Don't underestimate what's going on here. Death was following him everywhere he went, and they wanted to rip him to shreds. And so what's happening here is Paul, he comes to Jerusalem, he's on his way, and along the way, as we work up to this, and we start going into this Nazarite vow once again, because you've got to remember, go back to Acts 18, we saw that in Kentria. Basically, what happens here, Philip has four daughters. We started talking about that. Philip, he was the very deacon that actually saw the Ethiopian eunuch and ran to him and gave him the gospel from Isaiah 53, which many theologians call Isaiah 53 the actual, the actually the first gospel, which that, has, that carries a lot of weight. And so he has four daughters. And basically the four daughters, there was a prophecy. We need to read this because this leads into Agabus. Joel chapter 2, verse 27 to 29. Ken, Dave, could you look that up? Joel chapter 2, verse 27 to 29. And as you're looking that up, there was, a, there was a plentiful pouring out of the Spirit upon the flesh of sons and daughters. And in this period of time, there were some very prominent and profound prophets that literally could determine the future. 
and Christ would give them that power, and it would actually come to pass. And this is what's happening here. So if you have that, Dave, Joel 2, verses 27 to 29. Yeah, Joel two twenty seven to twenty nine. That's it. Yep, thank you. That's all the way back in the Old Testament. That's a very important prophecy, and it basically comes to fruition, because now here we see, if you were paying attention, in the beginning of Acts 21, four daughters of Philip have the power of prophecy. So we got into the debate. It wasn't really a debate. It was very good correspondence. We were talking about what are women's role in the church. These women were incredible. They had to be very careful because back then you saw what happened to Paul the Apostle. You're seeing it now, what they're, what they're willing to do to him. If women would have taken any type of authority or polity of the church into one of these synagogues or temples back then especially, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have stood a chance to be able to live. Because that was a capital punishment against the synagogues, especially if they ever entered into the court of the Israelites you could not enter into that without approval from the high priest. And if a woman did it, they would have been put to death. So these women, they stayed their place exactly where they were told, how the Lord guided them because they were being protected, but they had power because literally apostles could come to them and they would give them prophecy. That's how the Lord honored women. The Lord's not what people make Him out to be, some kind of, some kind of horrible horrible, uh, 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 you know, uh, just tyrant against women and children, he really emancipated them in a lot of ways. And you can see that in the New Testament. And he defended and protected them and gave them extremely important jobs. These women had power. They literally got together with Agabus, who we're going to talk about again in a minute, and Agabus, and they sit down and they tell Paul, first of all, it was a warning Agabus takes the girdle or the belt, ties it around his hands, and he says, Paul, when you go up to Jerusalem, this is going to be it for you. This is going to be a very difficult time for you. And here we see Paul go into the Jewish council. First he goes into what there really was a presbytery meeting, and we saw James, James the Just, that was the half-brother of Jesus. He's one of the apostles. One of the few elders that are left back. They go over all of their plans, and they talk, they love him, it goes well. Paul goes through this purification, which we're going to talk about. Then the Jews get him, and then the ultimate prophecy was he's going to be given into the hand of the Romans. Does it happen? Look at the end of the chapter and see what happens. The Romans actually wind up incarcerating him to save him from dying. They're the ones that save his life. But then he has to go before Felix, Agrippa, and the, and the messages that he gives them are, are just, you, you can't not adore them. They're so wonderful what he says, and we're going to look at that. But anyway, at this point we see, here is the four, here, here are the four um, daughters of, of, of Philip, and we see here also that when Peter was beaten, Stephen had been stoned, John the Baptist had been beheaded, 
It was bad enough for the men. What about if the women were doing this? We talked about that. They kept their place, and it was very important that they did for protection. And here's another Christian prophet in Jerusalem, perhaps a Hellenistic Jew. As you go back to chapter 11, we actually did see Agabus before. You go back to Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 29. Lisi, could you look that up? Acts 11, 27 to 29. Right, and so we see, thank you, we see, that the, the, we see that before, back in chapter 11, we had seen other meetings back to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem was basically the main church where they had their presbytery meetings. That's where the apostles and the pastors and the elders, they got together, they would bring the monies that they were given on their missionary journeys, they would offer it up to the church, and that they would give and they, they would take care of the poor they would take care of those that at this time in Acts 11, there was a great dearth. There was a horrible famine. And it was Paul and Barnabas that was actually, they were sent to help. And so, you know, you can see that the apostles, they did a lot of different things. But we see the name Agabus here coming up. And Agabus was used. He was given wisdom with the daughters. They were given the prophecy. And that's basically what happened. Remember how the Old Testament prophets would sometimes, they attached physical signs to their God-given prophecies. And basically, Agabus says, to the man that owneth this girdle, he said, this man will be taken up and he will be taken in. He will be incarcerated. Basically, what he's saying is, is he's going to be in big trouble. When you go there, he says, you go there. He's warned not to go there. Paul comes back and says, it's in my heart to go there and I'm willing to die for the cause of Christ. And then they all get together and I love what they say. They give it a benediction. We will trust the Lord on this. The Lord wants this. They knew it. They couldn't even hold him back. They couldn't even... You ever see something... You ever go into a situation where you thought maybe somebody was going to get harmed, no matter what it is, and you try to do everything you can to talk them out of it, and it just doesn't happen? Sometimes the Lord puts people through trials, and it's hard for us to sit back and watch our loved ones or you know, our, our church family or whoever go through these things. And it happens. But Paul said, don't worry about it. I have learned from day one since I was on the road to Damascus and I was ready to persecute Christians that no matter what happens, Christ is my Savior. He is in charge. He will take care of this. That is, that is the, the sole wonderful blessing of a Christian knowing that power that Christ has over us. We were talking Wednesday night. Through our weakness, Christ is made strong always. Lisa. Right. 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 
Right. can be. It can be, definitely. I mean, there are churches today that I know of that won't even allow in, in you know, classes. I mean, of course, the, the, the Sunday morning worship service, no one is, is permitted to correspond. It's a time for the pastor to give the gospel and to, and to say it, and everyone is quiet. Unless once in a while they might ask a question to somebody quickly. But in, our, in, in every other class, in every other um, mode of worship in this church. It's always been traditional. And actually, that goes back over 100 years in the original Presbyterian church. Women were always allowed to correspond during the classes. And I think that's a wonderful thing. In some churches, that's not allowed. But anyway, I think that's a very important point. And why do we have to honor our offices? The, the Trinity, there's three different offices right there, and they are all perfectly honored by the, each por- portion. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they all... Have, remember what Christ said, that I must leave and I must sit up on the right hand and ascend to the heavens so that I might send the Comforter, that He can guide and He can direct and He can protect you. Christ, could have, if Christ would have violated that by saying that and then coming back down on the earth physically and trying to do the work of the Holy Spirit with the Holy Spirit. That would have been a violation. And so everything is done decently and in order. And it has to have different offices. And that's very important. And so we see how there were, there were signs. There, there, was a significant, there were significant physical signs to prove these prophecies. And the Lord has given them to us to remind us that these prophecies are real. And even today, if you study archaeology, there are certain altars and there are certain things that are still erected over in the Middle East and over Jerusalem that still stand, things that were erected thousands of years ago. There were significant, absolute, physical manifestations of the prophecies of God so that they can't be denied. So let's go forward. See, Agabus here, he gives the prophecy. And what happens here, they take up their carriages. Paul comes in. He sees a man named Manasseh, and we talked about him. He's a disciple. And what that, what's wonderful about that is that the love that the people have for him. And there were those that just loved him, and they would be ready to die for him. They would have stood in his stead, and they would have stuck by him, and Paul would draw himself away so that they wouldn't have any problems. It's one of the reasons he left Ephesus. It was heating up there. Look at the Jews that come here and they grab him. It says they came from Asia Minor. That means they were back there trying to torment him when he was all back in the Greek islands. When he was there preaching back in all these different islands that we had talked about, they were pursuing him then. And it got to the point where the Ephesians came and they wrapped their arms around him in tears and they were all crying and saying, we're going to miss you. And basically, really what the sentiment was is it came time that Paul was saying, if I don't get out of here, you're all going to be, you may be killed. Your churches may be destroyed. I've got to get out of here now. The Lord's telling me that. And so they actually hated him so much, these, these, these Jews from Asia Minor, they follow him all the way to Jerusalem, and they're the very ones that open up the hate against him and start bringing him in. But there were people that loved him. He reminds me of certain areas in Scripture that I think are very prominent. They took up, they took up their carriages. 
um, the, the, the baggage, the travelers. Uh, there were those that invited him, invited Paul into their home, which is always a wonderful blessing. The Jerusalem Council, they distributed the money. They took him in and there were those that just loved Paul. Manasseh was an old disciple and he's a good example. You remember back in John eleven sixteen. This is a, this was actually in some of my studies with some of the commentaries. These examples came up and I thought they were such good examples on how there are those that just love the Lord. They love his church and they're willing to do anything. Go back. Could I ask Charlie, could you look up John chapter 11, verse 16? And I'd like to look at this just for a second, just a little bit of a side sidebar here. And then Teresa, if you could, in the meantime, look, look up second Samuel 15, verses 20 and 21. These are incredible events that show the love that others had for their Savior and for those that love the Lord. Yep, John eleven sixteen. Does anybody remember that event? Thank you, Charlie. Remember that event? Do you remember what happened there? This was an incredible event that happens, and it was in Judea. What happened? Anybody? Yes. They were already persecuted in Judea. Christ said, listen, Lazarus is sick. He's, got, he's, he's really sick, and they, but he's, he's sick, and he sleeps, and I will awake him. And the disciples say, well, there's no problem, he's just asleep. Uh, he'll wake up, he'll be fine. And they said, and Christ said, uh-uh, he's dead. And when he says he's dead, that means dead, dead. And he was dead. And he says, we're going to go back through Judea, we're going to go to Bethany, we're going to meet up with Mary and Martha, and I'm going to do something, because I'm going to prove, and I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove myself to you. He says that. So basically, Thomas, you know, at this point, the disciples loved Jesus, but they didn't trust him. They didn't have a complete, well-rounded trust that he was going to the cross, that he was going to resurrect. They were still, they were still basically caught in what is very popular today, is what I like to call the fog of familiarity, the habitat. They were just so used to him being around, they couldn't imagine him being gone, and they, didn't, they couldn't even think that far ahead. Christ could think all the way far down ahead, even to this day, when he wrote, he wrote his prophecies in the consolatory discourse in John 13 to 18. And he said what was going to happen even to this day. They couldn't see that far and ahead. Thomas says, there he goes again. He's fearless. And he's going to, if he's going to take us down with him, well, so be it. I'll die with him. But he loved the Lord. And he says, I'll die with him. Let us all go that we may die with him. And then I think of another event here. That would be Manasseh. That would have been Agabus. That would have been Peter or James or any of these apostles that loved to be with Paul. They loved him and they would die for him. But he said, no, I'm going. And they take him. Here's another. I think this is a very, very incredible incident that I was like, you know, it's adding a lot more information maybe to the class that maybe we didn't have time for this. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, we got to look at this because it's good to go back to the Old Testament. There was an event that happened back in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Does anybody remember Ahithophel? Who was Ahithophel? Anybody? That's a tough question, so don't worry about it if you don't know. Do you remember who he was? Yes. Good job. The counselor to David. 
But Ahithophel had a little problem. There was a new kid in town. There was a new self-professed sheriff in town. A handsome, handsome, very... It says the Bible said he didn't have one blemish on his whole body. That was Absalom, the son of David, who David himself was a, just a, a paragon of, of, you know, of, of manliness and handsome, and very brilliant. And what happens is incredible here. Teresa, if you have those verses, could you read them? 2 Samuel 15, 20 and 21. So how do we plug that into Paul? Thank you, Teresa. We see that there were those that loved Paul and were willing to die for him, and they were sad to see him go. This is Ittai. Ittai, whatever how you pronounce it. It's different ways of pronouncing it, I think. He is a friend and a counselor also and a soldier of David. And he says to David, what happens is David does something that is extremely courageous. He prepares to leave Jerusalem Jerusalem. Sound familiar? This is where Paul is. He's in Jerusalem. Look at the connection. Paul was a Benjamite. He was a Jew. He was a Benjamite. And here David hears word that Ahithophel goes out into basically the gates of Jerusalem. And Absalom cries out and says, Oh, if I could just be the judge, I would comfort all the people's hearts. And he stands out there with Ahithophel and he starts gathering the Israelites and giving them all these patronizing statements on how he's going to help them and do all these things. And he starts grabbing their hearts and David hears this. And so David, so he wouldn't divide the kingdom and he wouldn't have the people hurt, even his concubines, he says, I'm leaving. I'm going to go towards Zadok. I'm leaving. I'm going to spare the congregation instead of dividing them. I'm going to save the people, I'm going to watch over them, and I'm going to get up to the high country and look down so I can save my people from being harmed. If I die, I die. And Ittai says, I'm going to go with you. And I'm not going to do anything but watch over you. And David was really blessed by that. And look what he does. He, he the Lord spares him, and it's Absalom is the one that finally gets killed. But look at the love that these men had for the people of God. You don't see that anywhere else. You don't see undoring love that you're willing to go all the way to the death for somebody outside, hardly much outside of Christianity. You don't. It's all throughout Scripture. And this is how the people felt about Paul. I, I, I love that story. I think that's an, it's incredible. Remember how Elisha stayed close to Elijah before Elijah's departure. And that was very dangerous because of the way... Ahab and Jezebel were so wicked and they were, killing the, they were killing the priests. And Elisha looked over Elijah. These were, these were very brave men. Manasseh was a very, very brave man. Here we see Paul was well received. He came to Jerusalem. There were theirs that, those that took him in. Now we're going to go forward. What was it about this Nazarite vow? What was it about this Nazarite vow that was just 
that was problematic. Can anybody imagine how this Nazarite vow could have been a problem? And what the Jews were trying to tell Paul. I'm trying to look their verses up in Numbers. I know, I know in Numbers, this is where that Nazarite vow is. I'm going to Numbers chapter 6. But there's some other verses that are attached to that. Anyway, could, could I tell you what? Could um, maybe, uh, let's say, uh, Matthew, could you look up Numbers chapter 6, verse 9, and read this? What, what are the Jews trying to do here to Paul? As we move forward, as we read earlier, Paul comes to the Jerusalem council, the Jews grab, and then they said, Paul, thousands of us have come out of the Pharisaical order. We've come out of the Sadducees. We now believe in Jesus Christ. We are now Messianic Jews. And they're saying, but we've got a problem. You have been eating and you have been working with the Gentiles. They're still in the grip of ambivalence. On one hand, what do we do with the institution of the old law? On the other hand, what do we do with the new covenant of Christ that he's resurrected? How do we bring this together? And there Paul has to do something here. If you could read that, Matt, please. Thank you. What happens here, basically, is when we get into these verses, the Jews come after Paul, and they said that there are four who have come through this purification. So, should Paul have given in to them, or should he not have? That's the question. It's the, it's the conundrum between Peter and Paul regarding the circumcision of Timothy. Does anybody remember why Paul went ahead with the circumcision of Timothy? This is important stuff. Really important, because it either, either we can see that Paul was nothing but an abject hypocrite, or there was a reason why he did this. That's right. Right. So then the question is, did you have your hand up, Lisa? Go ahead. That's okay. Right. And David, people followed Absalom because, you know, he was, you know, he was Right. To this day, yeah. Right. 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 So what happens is what they're trying to do is they're trying to take him back and they're trying to say, listen, 
you're going to have to make a vow. You're going to have to go back to the old law and the covenants, and you're going to have to prove to the Jewish nations now, Paul, now, out of the Jewish council, now getting ready to go preach and go out on the missionary field out in that area again. Before you do this, thousands of Jews have come to Christ and you're going to have to make this vow of purification, and you're going to have to confirm once again this Nazarite vow, and if you do this, you will win their hearts. Well, Paul says, well, forthwith, without hesitation, okay. So the question is, was it a sin for him to do that? Absolutely not. It was not a sin. I'm going to read you some comments here. I think it's important to look at this, and this takes us into the next... In, into the next um, um, confrontation with the Asia, the Jews that came from Asia Minor. Here's a few statements from Matthew Henry. They are all zealous of the law. They believe in Christ as the true Messiah. These are these Jews now that are with Paul. They rest upon his righteousness and submit to his government, but, the apostolic but, or the, or the, or the uh, therefore, or but they know the law of Moses was of God. They have found spiritual benefit in their attendance on the institutions of it, and therefore they can by no means think of parting with it nor of growing cold to it. So perhaps they urge, and perhaps they urge Christ's being made under the law and observing it, which was designed to be our deliverance from the law. As a reason from their continuance under it, this was a great weakness and mistake to be so fond of the shadows when the substance was come, to keep their necks under a yoke of bondage when Christ had come to make them free. What a way to put that. He said they're living in the shadows when the substance had come. They're still having a problem with who Christ really is. And I think that's the real problem today with many people. They don't understand the incredible unlimited power and the beautiful salvation and mercy of Jesus Christ as God. Is He God or is He not? That's the question. That is the ultimate question. Not to be or not to be. It's, is He God or is He not? And if He is God, which He is, He's either Lord of all, as Pastor Mike Britton always said, or He's not Lord at all. And that's what it is. And if you notice back in the verses we read back in 2 Samuel that Teresa so wonderfully read, 15, 20, 21, the word Lord started with a small letter. That's a Hebraism. It didn't start with a, with a capital. David was not his Jesus Christ Lord. He was the Lord as the king. And so David was never going to take that, that on and, and him be a Messiah or take some kind of deity but Ittai called him Lord as his king on this earth, not the king of kings. And so here these Jews now are being introduced to the absolute wonderful blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're having a problem with it. And they're saying, Paul, if you want to get into these people's hearts, you need to do just what Timothy did when he got circumcised to give a window and an opening to be able to get into their hearts, go into the synagogues, be able to relate with them, and they think this is going to work. And this is what happens. This Nazarite vow is incredible. We see here that basically, with Paul, what happens is, I'm trying to get to the point, back in Kentria, it was, this would certainly cross-examine Paul back then 
on whether he obeyed the law or Paul, if it was ceremonially inappropriate reverence in order to present him keeping the Nazarite law all the way back in Acts chapter 18 in front of the congregations. So basically, what would it mean that he had shorn his head or these four men had already done it? The word shorn is a derivative of the word shear, which is a verb that means to cut the wool off like a sheep or another animal to cut off with scissors or shears. It means to chop off, to lop off, or have something cut off. So this is being described as Paul has shorn his head and sheared his head back in Acts chapter 18. Well, back here I have some more commentary. Matthew Henry thinks it is not all unreasonable to believe that it actually was Paul making this vow, and actually his vow was one of the most, would be significant of the vow of a Nazarite. Why Paul picked this specific vow Nobody was actually sure of it, but he knew that this was a way to win their hearts. And it was a way to show them that he had reverence and respect upon them. He was there to test. John Calvin makes a great distinction among amongst the difference between the honoring a vow that is not predicated on religion. What Paul was trying to show him through this is that with reverence and honor, he goes through the whole process of going through this part of purifications, and then he can come back and say that was the old law, and he can say the thing that the Pharisees hated the most. They said that Jesus Christ did what to the law? What did he do to it? Abrogated it, killed it. See, the word abrogate takes on a lot of different forms. Abrogate can mean to bring it upward or, or, or fulfill it or show the, the, the efficacy of it. But they were saying, he killed the law. And so when he's with Gentiles, they're saying, he's dirty. Does anybody remember the trouble that Christ got into when he went into Samaria and he saw the woman at the well? Remember when he told the disciples to go get meat from their markets to feed them? That was 100% against Jewish law. He could have been killed right then and there for that. And especially back in John 10.30, he says, I and my father are one after this. I mean, this was, this was serious. Lisey. Right. Amen. Right. So, you know, it would stand to reason. That's a fantastic point. It would really stand to reason that since Christ said, He that is free is free indeed, He is free to go back and to honor the old law, to show that the law is still wonderful. But we have to remember back in this period of time, it took years for them to really get it through their hearts that they didn't have to sacrifice animals anymore. Do you know today that the Sumerians, the Sumerians over in the Middle East, they still only honor the Pentateuch of the Bible and they still sacrifice animals? That's what they do. And so basically what Paul is saying here, by honoring this Nazarite vow and this, this mode of purification, he's saying, yes, Christ did not annihilate the law. He fulfilled it. 
And when he abrogated it, he showed the efficacy and the wonderful blessings from the law. And he says, he that loveth the Lord, you love the Lord, keep my commandments. He didn't say, stop keeping those commandments in the Old Testament because they've been abrogated and they've been annihilated. You keep my commandments. And that's the work that he says as Christians, we are to keep his commandments, we are to keep his word. And his commandment is his word. So Paul did it. I mean, what Paul did was very brave. It was extremely reverent that he had honored them. It would appear the connection here is that they were thankful for this reverence. And we see how with this reverence, Paul in his heart showed a mercy that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would not show. They never gave him any mercy whatsoever. Here's some other statements here that we can read. It was true that Paul preached the abrogation of the law of Moses, taught them that it was impossible to be justified by it, and therefore we are not bound up any longer to the observance of it. It was false that he taught them to forsake Moses. That was the real problem. What they were saying to Paul is, if you make it, if you make it appear in any way, shape, or form, that you are violating the work and the law of the prophet Moses, you're going to have yourself in a big problem with the Jewish sect out there, the Judaizers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the council. You're going to have a real problem with them. But did it work? Did it work? I mean, Paul, is so, he's so wonderful through this. He's teaching them justification, justification by faith through the actual the purification ritual, which he honors here, the Nazarite vow, going back to Numbers chapter 6, verse 9 and on. It's like several verses after that. He does it. So we see how the respect we see back in Acts chapter 18, verses 18 and 9, and it's number 6 actually, goes all the way to verse 20, on how important that it was that Paul honored this. And it was also important that Paul had Timothy honor it also because he was getting ready to go by himself in these synagogues. Had he not been circumcised, had he not gone in and honored these vows, that would have been a real problem also. He and Peter had a problem with that. So as, we, as, we're, as we're moving forward here, basically what happens here is then Paul, we, as we were reading in verse 26, as to not be confused, a whole nother sect of Jews come out of nowhere. And I'd like to read this one more time, just a couple verse. And when the seven days were almost ended, now this is Paul going through this purification, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, this is, I'm sorry, Acts 21, verse 27. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. And now you see three sect of Jews. Eventually, they're all going to be going against each other. Paul goes in and he starts speaking before them after they've beaten him. And he starts talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees agree with the resurrection. The Sadducees disagree with the resurrection. And they start going at it. And here, the third sect of Jews, which is the one here, these are the Christians. These Jews come after the Israelite Jews that love the Lord now. And they're saying, hey, we got to get this guy. 
You need to help us. Thousands of Jews, and there was, this was Passover, this was one of the feasts, and they're all worried about one guy. Doesn't it expose what the liberals are doing right now, that they're worried about one guy? One guy! He really, he threatens them, because his name, you hear his name, Trump's name, more than you hear Biden's name now. And And they're showing how afraid they are. Paul is public enemy number one all over again to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Whereas before, he was public enemy number one to the Christians. And so what happens? We read all these verses. Let's go down to the, towards the end, towards verse 36. For the multitude of the people followed after crying, Away with him! And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? Who said, Canst thou speak Greek? And then they come back and they say, Art now thou that Egyptian which before these days made us an uproar and led us out in the wilderness, 4,000 men that were murderers? But Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I beseech thee, or I beg thee, I suffer me to speak unto the people. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, and chapter 21 ends with a comma at the end of the verse, and he takes the field now. Just this incredible. He goes right in. We'll be looking at that later because we've got to stop here soon. But along the way here, they grabbed him, they beat him, they held him over their heads, literally, so that other people wouldn't grab his body and tear it to shreds. And they bring him in and he goes, wait a minute, I want to say something. Can I talk? Can I speak? He wants to make some kind of a, he wants to make some kind of a, a testimony to them. And then what does he do? Without looking at verse 22, does anybody remember what he says? What he goes into? He goes into two major events. He goes into his conversion on the road to Damascus. And before we get into that next week, I want you to consider the pain in his heart that it must have taken for him to have to bring that up again and to go back and to say, these people that I love so much that are born-again Christians that love Jesus Christ, I was going and I got the writ from the priest. I went after It's like going down to the district courthouse and getting some kind of zoning permit to build a building. He was getting a permit to go persecute more of them and expand his territory. He goes into that and then it has to get harder for Paul because then he goes into what happened to Stephen and he says, I even held the cloaks of the men that killed my Christian brother. That's what he tells him. And he starts off giving a history of what had just recently happened and then he goes all back and he ties it in and he gives them the gospel of Jesus Christ. What could be better? That's the defense that we have. And that's what he does. And so here Paul, by himself, and later on we're going to see Christ beats him again, and he says, Paul, fear not. Fear not, even in the midst of this lion's den, just as Daniel was down there, and all the little, the little, the the big lions were just laying there purring the whole night, and they never touched a hair on his head. Right now, Paul knows that Christ is with him. And that's, that is our, uh, confidence and our, our love as a Christian, knowing that no matter what we go through, Christ is with us. So let's finish with prayer. Um, Jacob, could you close us this morning? Thank you.